Welcome to today's episode, number 96, Sarah and the Fiery Furnace of Affliction. Just as a reminder, if you have a story to tell, or want to tell, I ask that you contact me at dtsocha at gmail.com. Also, if you have enjoyed these podcasts, send them to your friends and family, post it to Facebook or Instagram. The more people that learn and understand about mental illness, the better the outcome for all of us. Now on to today's episode. When I talk about Sarah today, I would like to say that her story was an outlier, a story that lies so far out of the normal bell curve that we could in some ways say that it generally doesn't apply to the majority of us. Why would I say that? I do not believe that I have ever met anyone who has faced a hotter, more intense, heated blaze of personal trials than Sarah. So in some senses, I think that I would like to believe that perhaps Sarah's story is one of those scripture-type stories. You know, those stories you hear and you believe, but never believe that it will happen to you or anyone you know, because it's simply full of such dramatically difficult circumstances that lead to such an unexpected place. As I heard her story and took time to discuss it with her, my first thought was that she shouldn't be alive. And my second thought was that no one should have to live through such a furnace of affliction as she has. And my third thought, closely behind the other two, was how remarkable she was and is as a disciple of Christ. Her story was compelling and inspirational to me, as she has truly passed through the exceedingly darkened shadows of the valley of death, and has come out on the other side with a true relationship to her Father in Heaven and Savior. Her story is one of true resilience, and I hope that you'll be able to see that life can be exceedingly difficult, and yet we can still hold on to the hope that the gospel brings to us in our lives. Here is her story. Sarah was brought up in a traditional small-town family setting in a rural part of the western United States. She is a product of the pioneer tradition and an only child. She attended church and school and did those things that young people do. However, there is a twist to her early story. While she attended church and grew up in a family that were and are members, her parents were not as loving and attentive as you might predict. As she puts it in her own words, quote, As an adult, I understand that my parents both have their own mental health challenges. But as a child, I only knew that I never knew what kind of dad was coming home that day or if my mother would even take notice of me. My father is, to this day, a man with wild mood swings and a mean temper, while my mother is often extremely depressed and dwells continually on the dark side of life. I was left to fend for myself most of my life. I made my own meals, did my own laundry, and was never asked about schoolwork or given any supervision at all. I was often lonely and depressed and starved for attention. I was always desperate for attention from anyone at all, and often acted out in inappropriate ways, end of her quote. Now, her fiery furnace began, obviously, early in life, and it led to many problematic situations, but one of the most devastating was her relationship to the church and her father in heaven. While many of us might not think about it in this manner, we often learn about a loving heavenly father through the interactions we have with the male figures in our lives. We come to understand love through our parents and those closest to us. For Sarah, and for many individuals who do not have loving examples from which to learn, coming to understand the idea of a pure, loving, heavenly Father 
or even loving heavenly parents is difficult. When both parents show indifference or have serious difficulties of their own, one can learn a definition of love that is not true or necessarily appropriate. In Sarah's case, she was desperate for love, belonging, inclusion, and all of those normal childlike and perhaps adult-like desires. Unable to find love in her home, she reached out to many other places in her life. Unfortunately, church did not provide many answers or the acceptance she desired, as she often felt out of place and many times rejected. One of those terrible experiences came through her desire to be loved. She was sexually abused when she was 12 years old. For most individuals in this world, it would be, de- it would be a devastating event, causing serious pain, problems, and misunderstandings. And of course it did for her. But something else occurred that shows just how difficult her life had been to this point. Even though she had been abused, the abuser actually cared for her well-being more than her parents, and she found herself feeling as though someone actually cared for her in her life, cared about her existence. That statement alone gives some idea of the initial difficulties she encountered in this life. The abuse caused an even more difficult and bewildering state when it came to church. Naturally, the abuse was not her fault, in any sense of that word. During the time frame of her teenage life, there was a heavy influence within the church on sexual purity, in the sense that young returned missionaries did not want young women who were not pure before the Lord and able to immediately enter the temple. There there has always been such an undercurrent within church standards, but for her it was accentuated by the time frame and the emphasis in the church and her own experience of abuse. Those teachings, which should have been comforting to her because the abuse was not her fault, made her feel as though there was no hope for her, further driving her from church activity. Not only did she not feel accepted, she felt rejected. This is one of the many problems during that time frame, but was certainly the most notable and caused terrible emotional swings. Now, I'm going to pause here for a moment to discuss something that ran through Sarah's story that to me is incredibly important to mental illness and life in general. At the time, she did not recognize it because of youth and immaturity. But she states now that she understands that most adults are trying their best to do what is right, even if sometimes their efforts turn out to cause further injury. She fully understands the theory and the practical application of the saying that we are mortals in a fallen world. One thing I found impressive about her story was her ability to find compassion for those who have caused her serious pain in her life. She was able to separate the action from the person and see not the hurt, but the intent of the individual. Even if their intentions may not have been the best, she seems to be able to put aside those comments that swirl around those of us who suffer like a dust devil. I believe that for her, and for almost everyone who suffers, this ability to separate the person and the act, and to ignore, laugh at, or set aside those comments that might derail our lives, is one of the keys to her success. So much of what is said about mental illness, in general and specifically, directed at those who suffer, has no merit, and to give it place to hurt, damage, or derail our lives, is really to give it life that it doesn't deserve. Now, a well-intentioned young women's leader attempting to give a lesson on sexual purity is one thing, but Sarah seems to be able to do this with individuals who really should have known better. 
She had a seminary teacher, unable to see beyond her mental illness and family problems, call her, quote, a bad seed and without hope. She had an LDS counselor who should fully understand mental illness and all that comes with it, tell her she had no faith and needed to accept Jesus Christ in her life. Her words regarding the seminary teacher and the seminary experience are very telling. She said this, quote, Today, I see him as a fallen mortal man dealing with numerous teenagers the best he could. Her perception of those who should have known better and those who didn't is driven by this perspective of mortal man. She also allows this compassion to flow into her memories of the past, avoiding the terrible trap of self-condemnation, which so easily comes to mind, body, and feelings during depressive and anxiety-laden episodes. She has learned one of the greatest secrets of mental illness, and that is no matter what has happened in the past, we should extend mercy to those around us and ourselves. In talking about this attribute with her, I sensed that her perceptions were not always this way, and perhaps it is still a work in progress, but in doing so, she has found great happiness. And if I had to say, if I felt one thing from her, it was happiness. Her life experience has been anything but happy, and yet she exuded optimism that can only be explained by her understanding of the atonement of Jesus Christ and his gospel and her ability to separate herself from those damaging words and experiences that often interrupt and derail our lives. Now, if you thought that was the end of the story, you were far from wrong. High school was, as she puts it, and these are her words, her words, a roller coaster of manic highs and terrible depressive lows. I was overly trusting and desperate for attention and approval, and so made some poor choices. Well, I think this could be the definition of high school for many of us who suffered with mental illness. Given her circumstances at home, church, and with the mental illness, one can feel the difficulty she faced. In the face of those terrible circumstances, she, of course, joined the military. Now, the military is an interesting choice for someone with a mental illness. It can give the rigid structure that is so necessary to manage the illness, but at the same time, give terrible choices of morality degrading speech, and a lack of respect for women, especially at the time frame she joined. The military has never been very good, or good at all, dealing with sexual assault in women in the armed forces, as far as relationships with men. This was more especially true when she served. She was subject to all the army had to offer, and unfortunately, outside of the rigid structure, everything else was not conducive to having a mental illness. The military provided a compounding effect upon her illness, but that was not the only problem it provided. She served and traveled all all over the world, including Iraq and Afghanistan. In both places, she experienced a life and death moment. While in Iraq, her conveyance was hit by an IED, which rolled her vehicle and caused her a serious concussion. Likely due to the misunderstanding about what concussions can do to the mind and body, not to mention mental illness, She was cleared to return to active duty and found herself in Afghanistan. This time, the IED explosion was followed by an eight-hour firefight. While she had been injured and seriously injured by shrapnel from the vehicle in which she was riding, another concussion ensued with additional serious injuries to various parts of her body. This time, the recovery was a year. This, of course, caused the mental illness to take a more serious turn with PTSD. 
While none of us is likely to ever experience IEDs and serious injuries from military action, what is important about the story at this point is that physical trauma can and does cause a host of problems for someone with a predisposition to mental illness. And while Sarah's story is dramatic, it does not take such injuries or drama to bring about serious mental illness. Anytime someone experiences trauma in their life, mental illness should be a concern. Not all mental illness from trauma is a lifetime sentence, but it can take many years for individuals to recover, even from the smallest form of trauma. Now, Sarah is unsure of what memory has been altered or arranged, rearranged, or forgotten due to her injuries, but interestingly, she seemed unconcerned about it. One thing of note about trauma and mental illness is memory loss. Most individuals will lose some memory while, experience, while experiencing mental illness, and some will lose a great deal. Sarah appears to have a remarkable memory for someone who has experienced so much trauma. I have always looked at my loss of memory actually as a blessing, and I'm sure in many ways she feels the same. Most of what I have lost, I probably really don't want to remember, and I think that is true for most people, including Sarah. Now, you would think that Sarah has already experienced a lifetime of trials and fire, and that perhaps the Lord would take it a little easier on her. But it seems that we don't always understand the Lord's plan. So she decided to leave the army after her injury in Afghanistan. And, of course, she got married. Interestingly enough, she was probably not in the best place in her life to make a choice of a spouse. And she would agree that it was hasty and with the wrong person. It is interesting to me how often that is the case for those who suffer mental illness. I have met many individuals who have stated almost identical thoughts as Sarah said to me about her choice to marry and have a diagnosed or even undiagnosed mental illness. Mental illness and its dependencies often cause individuals to select a boyfriend, a girlfriend, spouse for all the wrong reasons. And maybe, yes, there are a few right ones, but so many times mentally ill individuals end up in abusive relationships, abusive dependent relationships, and such was the case for Sarah. Now, she got pregnant and had a very difficult three-week active labor and then a three-month stay in the hospital. Now, eventually, the marriage ended, and Sarah ended up a single mother. These are her words for that particular moment in her life. I was alone depressed, and had a baby who depended upon me. I would spend the next five years job hopping from state to state in hopes that the next place, the next job, the next change would make me different. We moved from one side of the country to the other. We made great friends who I then ran away from in an effort not to remember that I hated who I was. Every time we left somewhere, I shut my mind tightly to forget who I was there. I always thought that the next place, I would be happy. The next job would be great. It would make me feel that I had a purpose. Now, I wanted to include this part of her life because it demonstrates one of the major symptoms of bipolar and depression and the underlying feeling so very well. For many of us, this idea of moving to get to the next place where we will be happy is a consistent event in our lives. It is always the next place, the next relationship, the next job, the next more education, Whatever the next is, we are making changes to find it. I personally have found that for me, and I think it is true for most people, this type of disruption was critical to interrupting my particular cycles, and bipolar cycles, and I could get some relief from the illness for a period of time, but the cycles always returned, and the pressure for the next event would eventually surface. 
If there is one thing that is not helpful to mental illness, it is this game of disruption that we do find our that we do to find our next happy place. It might help in the short term, but it is detrimental to long-term management of the illness. So what of the church, her membership, and her relationship with her Heavenly Father and Savior in all of this? I will admit that if I had read her story and not known that she was a practicing member, I would have guessed that she was not a member of the church. But in all the chaos and misunderstandings that came in her early life, there was one experience that was a catalyst to her. During her labor with her daughter, she had a very moving experience with the Spirit of the Lord. And as she puts it, quote, an experience that I could never deny came to my soul. That's the end of her quote. I find it interesting that the moments and places that the Lord chooses to speak to us, I probably find it interesting because they often seem so out of place. Not that delivering a child is out of place to feel the Spirit, but that Sarah was not looking for or looking for directing or directing her life in a way that would provide for such an experience. The Lord is merciful and kind and truly does care for those who have found themselves in the fiery trials of life. He is concerned for all of us, no matter our condition in life or the choices we have made. I think that it has been said by an apostle that you cannot sink lower than the atonement of Jesus Christ has the ability to lift. I believe this to be very true in Sarah's life. To paraphrase Sarah's comments about her church experience would simply not do it justice. Her perception of where she is at with the gospel is remarkably astute and insightful. I wanted to end with her words and a few comments about what she is experiencing in her journey of discipleship. These are her words to me. Quote, I do find that while my relationship with God is much better, my feelings on church are pretty hard. I struggle mightily with attending church. I feel like an outsider most of the time. Often I attend church and never speak to anyone. I find discussions to barely skim the surface of gospel doctrines while I want to dive into the deep end. I find the endless talking heads, quote, and her quotes, of the church to be draining, overwhelming, and depressing. I'm often depressed at the end of conference or even just church. After much prayer and work, I have some things that work for me. I try to build more bridges to places where I can say yes. For example, being a primary chorister is more than I can likely handle, but I can offer to be a dependable sub. I speak out when being asked to take a calling. If I'm extended a calling but my mental state is low, I ask for time to consider it. Singing in the choir is very stressful, but I can clean the building. Sew a skirt for a trek or drop a candy bar by for someone who is having a bad day. I do my best to separate tradition, culture, and doctrine, and I ponder true discipleship. What makes me a disciple? What does it mean for me to be active in the church? I have found more. I know why I do what I do. The easier church is for me. If I have a bunch of anxiety, sitting around waiting for 1 p.m. sacrament meeting winds me up more. So I find that reading an in-depth book about the scriptures, listening to a podcast on a gospel topic, or looking at gospel art might be all I can do that day. I no longer feel guilty for not attending church because I understand why I have why I have what I have done. That being said, I do my best not to excuse myself from attending church or holding callings. Sometimes we still have to do just what we need to do. Attending the temple does not free me from my mental state. Having heard many stories of folks attending the temple and being free from physical pain made me think for many years that I should 
be free as well. Unfortunately, I have panic attacks and anxiety in the temple regularly. Sometimes the thought of attending terrifies me. I try to be very easy with myself when that happens. I do far more ceilings and initiatory than endowments, but I strive to attend the temple and meditate on the covenants made there. Feeling the spirit is my goal first and foremost, and I always accomplish that. Being a member means striving for perfection, and with my mental state, that often means dwelling on being member creates a terrible storm of guilt and depression. I do my best not to think about being a member so much. I don't worry about church. I think on the Savior. I sing primary songs about him. I stick to the primary answers as much as possible. I avoid dwelling on church history, previous prophets, and things we don't know unless I am in a very good mental state. I pray all of the time. I avoid members on social media and don't seek out things like uplifting church quotes or scriptures of the day or other things that other people think should make me feel good. I stick with regular scripture study, keeping the Sabbath day holy, and so much prayer. After years of self-medicating with behaviors that were not in harmony with being a member of the church, I have done my best to replace them with better habits. I would like to say I took up running and binge cleaning, but it's more like things such as journaling my emotions out than burning the pages. A punching bag I beat with a blackjack, regular exercise, communication about my mental and emotional state with my husband, eating well, sticking to a schedule, reaching out to others, and indexing for family history. These are all very slow-growing habits that in the beginning were really, really hard. They do not provide the quick fix that darker, darker habits provide to ease my emotional state, and they have taken a long time to help. I still sometimes backslide into something, anything, just to stop my mental anguish, but I am quicker to repent and get back on the wagon, and after years of practice, I am much better. I find that, I, that simply making the mental shift to the I don't do that helped a lot. I tell myself that I could make that choice, but really, I just don't do that kind of thing anymore. Now, once I am really gone down a dark spiral, I'm gone, and things are going to be what they are. But with surer foundation, I have a much shallower bottom. Also, once I find myself in the mud, I do not wait to wallow with the pigs. I come clean about everything to, the God, to God, start trying to make things right, and then fix any other relationships that need it. That's the end of her quote. Now, I have spoken much in these podcasts about how difficult some things in the gospel can be and are for those of us who suffer day to day. I will admit that Sarah's honesty and openness about her church experience is important. In fact, for me, it is the most important thing about Sarah. She is honest with the Lord, honest with herself, and honest with everyone. This approach, honest approach to her life says the most about her and her relationship with the Savior and His church. I found her approach to mental illness and her happiness about life engaging and refreshing and just a little bit contagious. I am very appreciative to her for sharing her story with me and with this audience. I hope that you have learned as much as I have from Sarah. While she will admit that she is a work in progress, she has become, in my view, more of a disciple of Christ than most of us become in a lifetime. Now, may we always do our part so that the Lord can do his. Until next week. May the Lord bless your path.